Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. We are going to be in the book of Daniel. And let me just tell you right now, there is so much information going in my head right now that we will see where this turns out. I will be just as surprised as you as to what comes out of my mouth. So, but I prepared. So uh, if you'll join me, we'll go ahead and go to God in prayer before we open up his word. So Father God, we just come before you. And God, we are so grateful that we can gather together. Uh, God, that we can sing praises, that we can lift up our request to you as your body collectively. And God, now that we get to hear your word and that it can just be proclaimed to us. And so God, I just pray that you open up our hearts to hear what you have to say and that God, there's so much information here. Um, just give me clarity of thought and God, let your truth ring through this message. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this, amen. So um, when I graduated college, I had a physical education degree and I was looking for PE jobs all over the place and I never could find one. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that because it led me to where I'm at right now. But I remember for a moment when I couldn't find any uh, jobs in physical education, I thought, well, I liked math and I liked history, so maybe I could teach those. And to be a teacher in high school, you have to take this test and it's called a praxis test. And that is what kind of gives you your degree. If you score good enough, then you are able to get your teaching license in that state. And so I thought, you know, I'd done K through 12 math. I did fairly well at it. I'm pretty sure without studying, I can just go take that test and be able to teach high school math. Same thing with history. And so that's what I did. I signed up one day, I paid like $500 to be able to fail a test, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I went, I took the test, no study, and it was like there were math problems that were like, that doesn't even make sense. There were history questions that I really don't, didn't know that happened at all. And so I would have been super shocked if I passed the test. I was expecting to, but I didn't. What really would have impressed me is if I aced it. If having not studied at all for this stuff, I took it and I got a 100% on both of those. I would have just been like, man, I need to teach at college level because high school's below me. But instead, elementary's probably below me on math and history. Now imagine if you were supposed to take a test and somebody were to ask you, tell me what's gonna happen in five years. Tell me exactly what's gonna happen on the world stage in five years. We could make some guesses, kind of like I was doing on that praxis test, but we would not really know exactly what's gonna happen. And when you look at the book of Daniel, you are reading visions and prophecies of things that happened not in the past, but of things that were going to happen. For us, it's in the past. But for Daniel, as he is seeing these visions and as he is receiving the prophecy from God, he is talking about things that are happening, not a year in advance where it's like right now we could probably be like, well, I would say that in the next year, China is going to have some kind of conflict with somebody and Russia is going to try and bully somebody. And like we could see what's happening now and say it's going to happen. But what if I were to say that like, you know, little Zimbabwe down there is gonna become a world power in five years? Like you can even point to Zimbabwe on a map 
probably. Okay, maybe you know history better than me. But that's not even history. See, there's a reason I'm not a teacher. It's geography. But, you know, you like it would be like saying that this little unknown country in five years is not just going to like beat up their territories around them. They're going to rise to a world power. That's what you see when you read Daniel. Now, we all are familiar with Daniel chapter 1 through 6, which is the narrative form of Daniel in which we know about the lion's den. We know about the fiery furnace. We know about the golden image. We know about Daniel doing the Daniel fast and refusing to eat meat and coming out stronger. That's the easy read. And then you get to 7 through 12. And it gets really confusing if you don't understand what is going on at that time. And so, like I said, there is a ton of information this morning. But what it does is it shows us who God is. Because he's not talking about things that happened after or before Daniel was written. He talks about things that happened after. That Daniel is saying in 200 years. This guy is going to come to power. In 300 years, this empire is going to rise up. And I mean, I nerded out on it. I read and I read and I read. And I am excited because this stuff fascinates me. How God speaks through Daniel and he's able to look into the future centuries. And he's not wrong by even one bit. He is accurate. So we're going to get into Daniel, and we're going to kind of cover this a little differently. We're just going to break it down chapter by chapter. The first six you're probably going to be really familiar with because, again, those are the little felt pads that you study in Sunday school as a little kid where you have Dine and the friendly little kittens that are, like, meowing next to it. And then you get to chapter 7 through 12, and that's where everybody is like, I really don't know what's going on. And I hope after today, you'll see Daniel in a new light. So Daniel, if you take notes, spans 70 years. You have Daniel going into exile in 605 BC under the Babylonian empire because it covers two empires. You have the Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian. And so you have Daniel going into exile and he goes all the way to the transfer of power to the Medo-Persian empire in 539 BC. So he spans roughly 70 years and two empires. The first six chapters are narrative. You get the story, you get the easy reading. And I want you to note these dates. Because again, one thing that people say about Daniel is it is way too accurate on the events that happened that it must have been written after all of these events took place. But Daniel gives us specific dates. In the third year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, in the first year of the reign of Darius, he is giving us dates because God is saying it's not after the fact, it is before it all happens that I am saying this is going to happen so that you can know I'm the God of past, present, and future. And so Daniel chapter 1 is written, it's the, the book is written in two languages based on the audience. Chapter 1 through 2 is in Hebrew because Daniel is writing to his own people, the Jews who have been exiled. And in Daniel chapter 1, you get the Jews going into exile under the Babylonian Empire and under King Nebuchadnezzar. If you're a VeggieTale fan, you know the story of Rackshack and Benny who don't bow down to the chocolate bunny. It's a very popular story. If you have a little one, watch it. If you don't, yeah, still watch it. It's fun. 
Then you have Daniel chapter 2. From chapter 2 to chapter 7, that is now written in Aramaic because Daniel is speaking to a different audience. He is talking about what is going on in the Gentile world. He is speaking to the Gentile, or in that time, the Babylonian people and everybody else around who spoke Aramaic. Daniel chapter 2, you get this weird dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about this huge statue, and he, he lists it, and it's composed of different uh, metals, and Daniel is able to interpret the dreams. And again, we see right away here that God is saying, I know what's going to happen in the future. Because Nebuchadnezzar says, I had this dream, and if anybody can interpret it for me, I will give them blessing, but if anybody is not able to, I'm going to kill you all. And all the wise men are like, well, tell us the dream first, and then maybe we'll be able to tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, you're just buying time. Instead, you tell me the dream, you tell me what it means, and I will know that you are telling me the truth. And they're like, there is nobody that is able to do this. And then Daniel is like, they're right. Nobody can. But God is able to tell you these things. And so he says that the head is the Babylonian empire. He says that the chest and the arms consist of the Medo-Persian empire. He says that the torso and the legs are like the Greek empire. And then he says that the lower legs and the feet is the Roman empire. And so he's already predicting these future empires that haven't even raised to the scene yet. And he's saying this is what is going to happen. Then you have Daniel chapter 3, probably one of my favorite stories in the book of Daniel. You have Rakshak and Benny not bowing down to the golden image. And so they are thrown into the, the lion's den. Again, my story's mixed up. They are thrown into the fiery furnace that we are told it is so hot that even the guards that came to throw them in died by the heat of the furnace. But yet... They are in there. Nebuchadnezzar looks in. He says, didn't we throw three in? But yet there is a fourth who looks like the son of man. And he says, come out. And they come out. And it says they were not even singed. Their hair was not singed. Not even a fabric on their clothing was touched by the fire because God delivered them. Then you get this interesting part where Nebuchadnezzar is really prideful in Daniel chapter 4. And he looks out at all his creation and he is like, look at what I have made. And God says, you didn't make that. I used you as a tool for my judgment against my people. Because of your pride, what is going to happen is you are going to eat the grass of the field like an oxen for seven years and you will live out in the wild and the dew will wet your back and the hair on your body will grow. In that very moment, it came to fulfillment. Not that very moment, I think it was actually a little later. Let me be accurate. But it came to happen. So for seven years he did that and then he came back and he repented and he humbled himself, but it did not continue for his lineage. Because suddenly, suddenly we jump another couple generations to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, where he is throwing this party, and he is like, bring out all the vessels of the house of God, and we will drink out of them. And then as they are about ready to feast, they see the writing on the wall as a finger comes, and it says, mene, mene, tekel, parson, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found guilty, and judgment is coming upon you tonight. And we see the end of the Babylonian empire and we see the beginning of the Medo-Persian empire. So again, Daniel has already said 
in the vision or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that the Babylonian empire is going to fall and there's going to be another empire coming up. And here we see the fulfillment of that. And then Daniel chapter 6, again, probably the first or second most popular story in the book of Daniel. This is now under the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius is king, and he is convinced by his wise people that, hey, you should make a decree for 30 days. Anybody that worships or prays to any other god or person other than you should be thrown into the lion's den because they wanted to get Daniel. Because he was a person of influence and he was working his way up in the ranks still. And so Darius says, so be it, I'm going to put my seal on it. And notice what Daniel does in this. I mean, think about it. If, if the president of the United States right now said, on Sundays, nobody can gather together and worship God, what would we do? Probably a lot of people would be like, all right, well, we'll just worship in houses or we just will use that as a reason not to show up. And what does Daniel do? Anybody who prays to another God will be thrown into the lion's den. And we are told that what he did is he went up into his room, windows open, and he got down and prayed three times a day, just as he always had. He doesn't change anything. He trusts in God to guide him and protect him. And what happens? He pays the price. They see it. They go tell Darius. Darius is like, man, I love Daniel. He's my guy, but I signed the decree. And so he says, Daniel, I got to do it, but I pray that your God is able to protect you. And he spends the night in the lion's den and wakes up the next morning, runs to the lion's den. Daniel, was your God able to save you? And he says, yes. He shut the mouths of the lions and protected me. And so we see, again, God working through and delivering his people, protecting his people. Multiple times we see courage of God's people in the face of oppression, and they say, whatever it be, we're going to be faithful to God. And so, again, those are the popular stories. You probably know those if you grew up in church or grew up in Sunday school or even read a little children's book, that that's the stuff that you saw. And then we get to Daniel chapter 7. And it takes this weird little turn because now you're talking about prophecy or visions. You're talking about Daniel seeing things that are coming and they're kind of confusing and we don't always fully understand them. But if we understand history at that time, this right here from Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 is secular history and the Bible running parallel to each other and showing that the Bible is true, that it is accurate. Because, again, the accuracy of these visions has led so many people to think, man, it was written like late 100s BC, like almost at the birth of Christ, because it is so accurate. But it, Daniel gives us dates, saying, I wrote about it before the events. So Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision of four beasts, and he sees the first one that is a lion. And that lion represents the Babylonian empire, the one that he is currently living under. And then the next one is he sees a bear and it's laying up kind of on one side higher than in another because that is the Medo-Persian empire which consisted of the Medes and the Persians, but yet the Persians were more prominent. Like you probably have heard if you've ever watched like the movie 300 where 
King Xerxes is coming out against the 300 Spartans. That is the Persian Empire. They rose to more prominence during that time. Then you have the leopard. This is the Grecian, 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 Greek, we'll call it the Greek. This is the Greek Empire that they come to power under like Alexander the Great. And then you see the fourth beast that is ferocious and hideous, and that is the Roman Empire. And so Daniel sees these visions, and he is able to interpret what they are. Daniel chapter 8, you have Daniel's second vision, where he sees a ram and a goat, and he is talking about the Medo-Persian Empire being the ram, because on this ram, there are two horns, and one comes up a little bit later, but rises a little higher, and again, he's talking about the Medo-Persians. The Medes came up first, but then the Persians came up, and they were a little bit higher. And then he says there's this goat, and this goat had one horn coming out of it, Alexander the Great. And he says, and then it was broken down, and in its place came up four. And history tells us after Alexander the Great died by malaria, not by war or battle or betrayal, by malaria, four of his generals came up. History is proving the Bible to be accurate yet again. And so then you have, again, Daniel chapter 9, his third vision. And this one fascinates me, where Daniel sees 70 sevens or 70 years in this. And the first one, it says that the first set of seven, the seven sevens, is going to go out from the decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. That happened March 3rd, the year 444 BC under King Artaxerxes. And so the decree was sent out to create or to build, restore Jerusalem. So you have seven sevens from that moment, 49 years. All right, so do we understand that? Try and It's on the board if you're not following it because this fascinated me. I hope it fascinates you. Some of you are probably like, whatever. It should interest us because the historical accuracy is incredible, especially when it's written about before. And so for 49 years, Jerusalem was cleared of all the debris and then Jerusalem was rebuilt. And then it says for 62 sevens, so for 434 years, it says that there is going to be 62 sevens from the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the time of the Messiah coming. So the triumphal entry was March 30th, AD 33. This is where I just was like, whoa, that's crazy. From March 5th, 444 BC, to March 30th, 33 AD, it is 173,880 days. The exact equivalent of 483 Jewish years. So God is saying for 483 years from the time that Jerusalem is rebuilt to the coming of the Messiah, it is going to be a total of 173,900 or 880 days. From March 3rd, 44 BC, to March 30th, AD 33 is exactly that time. From the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the triumphal entry is exactly that amount of days in the Jewish calendar. Is that not incredible? Apparently not. I'm up here alone. 
But I mean, it's like, God, how many of you are going to be able to even number how many days you can live? How many of you are even going to be able to say what's going to happen this week? Proverbs tells us man plans his steps, but it's the Lord that directs his path. Or as Heather tells me, mommy prepares the day, baby decides the outcome. <laughs> it's like we plan and right away we realize we're not. Yet here we are, 44 BC, almost 500 years later, and God is saying on this day, the Messiah is going to come. And on that day, the triumphal entry happens. That is incredible. And then we have one year, one set of seven, that a lot of scholars are saying has not happened yet. It is that the period that we are in now, they say, the church age, waiting for Jesus to come back a second time. Then you have Daniel chapter 10 through chapter 12. As much as Daniel chapter 9 impressed me, Daniel chapter 11. I studied and studied, and I'll spare you the details. You have a second handout in your bulletin that if you read through Daniel chapter 11, because it's the story of the battle between the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, these are two of the generals under uh, Alexander the Great when it split off into four, that it is reading that in detail. Like, all right, you asked, I'll share. So there's a moment in there where Daniel says, I saw that the daughter of one of the kings tried to ally with the other king, and he was hoping that it would be to his benefit, but it wasn't. And so then she ended up dying. And this is about Bernice, who was the daughter of, I think it was Ptolemy, and he married a Seleucid, trying to make peace there. And then the Seleucid's wife, ex-wife, was unhappy, so she killed Bernice. And then she killed Seleucid. And it's like Daniel talks about that. Like this afternoon, just go ahead and read Daniel chapter 11. Have that hand out there and just read where it says this king did this. And then history tells us that's exactly what happened. And it was written before the, the event. Like again, that's what blows my mind here is that this isn't a history book. This is a history book of the future. And that's what Daniel shows us. That God is a God of history, but also history future. That God is able to look into the future and he knows exactly what happens. That he is not just the God of the past. That he's not living this life out just like you and I are, where we can look back and be like, oh yeah, that happened. But we look to the future and we're like, well, I don't really know what happened. I have a pretty good idea, but I, I could be wrong. God is like, no, let me tell you what happens in the future. I know because I am not bound by time. I'm a God of past, present, and future. That Daniel, living in the era of the 600 to mid 530 BCs is prophesying, envisioning things that are happening 600 years later. And he's acing it. He is getting a perfect score on this test because God is speaking through him. So again, why do I say all of that? Why do I feel like this is important? Because nothing catches God off guard. God sees everything. So often we might feel like God, especially in today's events maybe, as you read about wars and rumors of wars, as you read about famines and natural disasters, as, as you maybe personally experience just 
major circumstances that catch you off guard. And our question might be, God, do you even know what's going on? And he's like, yes, I do. Not only do I know what's going on, I am still sovereign. I am still the God that is in control. I am still the God that is in charge. I am the God that knew in 200 years there was going to be this king in this Medo-Persian empire named Cyrus. Not only am I going to say there's going to be this king of this country, I'm going to say they're going to be the Medes and the Persians, and his name is Cyrus, 200 years in advance. It'd be like if some guy like Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a, a prophet, or not a prophet, a preacher a long time ago, would have been like, you know what, there's this little town in southeast Kansas called Columbus, and there's going to be this guy named Andy Peterman, and he's going to preach there. And if you found that in writing, it'd be like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Yet that is exactly what God did here. He's not off guard. He knew what was going to happen during the Ptolemy and the Seleucid War. He is, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He says, God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. That God is not bound by time. He's not even bound by our little fragments of minds. He is beyond it all. He can be trusted because of that, that he is accurate, that they're trying to prove in Daniel that, oh, it was written after the fact. It was written later on, and yet Daniel says, no, it's not, because I'm going to give you date markers so that you know when I had this vision, that I had it in this year of this king that was way before that time. God knows what is going to happen. Now think about that also as we're going to now hit a little closer to home. God knows exactly what you're going to do before you do it. God knew exactly what you were going to do before you did it, and he knows what you will do before you do it. Now, we might think of that like, well, yeah, he knows that uh, I'm going to do a lot of good stuff, right? And it's like, no, he knows the bad stuff even. We're told even the thoughts of man are not hidden from God. He knows the times that I blaspheme against him. He knows the times that I deny him by my actions. He knows the times that I curse or the times that I have impure thoughts or the times that I allow anger to get over me, even though nobody else ever sees it. God knows. God knows the very things that I was going to do that sent Jesus to the cross. God knew it, even though that was 2,000 years ago. He knew in advance already every single bad, and I wish I could say it was just bad, but terrible and unspeakable things that would happen in my life caused by me. And yet he still said, I'm going to send my son to die for that. That so many times people want to say, well, if God only knew what I did, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. God knew exactly what we were going to do before he sent Jesus. And yet he sent Jesus all the same. He knew it would cost him his son. And yet he sent his son to die for us. I mean, it'd be like if you, say, say you were going to get married. And you knew every single thing about this person. And like, again, whenever, at least for me, when I was dating Heather, my, okay, I was a little messed up and delayed a little too long to marry Heather, I'll be honest, she's not in here, I can say that. Uh, it won't be used against me. But <laughs> my mind went to the, yeah, but what if, what if? That's why I drug my feet, because I was like, ah, this is like death to us part, and that's a long time, hopefully. 
But what if going in, she was like, you know what, Andy, I'm not gonna be faithful to you. I'm not gonna say good things about you. I'm not gonna love you. I'm, I'm not even gonna be around with you. You still wanna marry me? I'd be like, no. Like, uh, I, no, there's probably somebody else out there. But yet that's exactly what God did with us. That he knew that we were gonna forsake the gathering together. He knew that we were gonna spend more time on social media or looking at screens than we were gonna be studying his word. He knew that we were gonna spend more times talking bad about people rather than going to God in prayer. He knew that we were going to deny him, reject him, run from him. And yet he said, you know what? I'm gonna send my son to die for them so that they can be in relationship with me. Ephesians chapter one, verse four tells us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Not when you proved yourself well, but he said, this was my plan before the foundation of the world, knowing everything they were gonna do, I choose you, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In verse seven, it says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and, and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This was always his plan. He knew everything that was gonna happen. Creating mankind, it's not like he said, oh, I have made everything perfect and then they ate of the fruit and he was like, well, I didn't see that one coming. He knew and yet he chose to do it still because he loves you that much. In love, he predestined you as for adoption as sons. He chose you to be his, knowing everything about you. I know everything about me and I don't like it. He knows everything about me. And he says, I'm gonna send my son to die for you because I love you that much. He gave his life for you, knowing thousands of years ago, time countless back, however you would say that, infinity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear says, he knew about you. And he said, I'm sending my son to die for you because he chose you before the foundation of the world. He's the God of past, present, and future, and he loves you that much. That's what he says. Not only was he before Abraham, but he will be forever after. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, but also Revelation chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says, I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, we just sang it, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That he spans eternity, past, present, and future. And what I want for that to do is I want for that to bring you hope. Because here he saw everything that was going to happen from hundreds of years before it actually happened, which means he can look into eternity future and he can see exactly what is going to happen so that when we look at the future and we don't know what's going on and we're like, oh my goodness, what's gonna happen? God is like, I know. He actually already told us 
Jay read out of Luke, I think it was chapter 22, chapter 21, right before that, Jesus is talking about, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars and plagues. And then he says, but you stand up straight, lift your heads, stand firm in God because your redemption is drawing near. We can have hope because God's already seen the future. He's already given us the playbook for the future as well. And what he's also done is given us the ending credits where we already get to see how it ends. I started reading Revelation this morning in my personal reading time. And it's like, oh man, there's a whole lot of craziness that goes on there in the middle. But then you get to Revelation chapter 19. And man, do I love that passage. Starting in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. This is how it ends. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, they were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not taken by surprise at what is going on. Then chapter 20, verse 7, it says, A thousand years are ended. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And it's like, oh my goodness, that is a vast army that is coming against God. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints. Oh no, all hope is lost. And it says the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I mean, that's like the yeehaw moment. That's like if you're watching this in a movie and you get like with maybe, maybe they're like apostolic people or charismatic Christians or something and they start clapping. It's like, yeah, the rider on the white horse is arriving and he is declaring victory. God is already showing us this is how it ends. I'm victorious and I'm going to be right about this. And so therefore, you Christians, bank your hope on this. Bank your hope on me that whatever is going on in this world, it does not defeat that. There could be 10,000 nukes, World War III going on, and God is like, that doesn't hold a candle to the power that I have in just my voice. That fire comes raining down, and it destroys and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever but not us, not God's people, not those who have been washed by his blood, who have placed their faith in him, whose names are written in God's book of life. No, we have a different ending. Revelation chapter 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for the words are trustworthy and true. We can believe them. He says to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, take hope in this. Now, when you see what's going on around the world, we serve a God who knew this was going to happen way before time existed. And he knows how it's going to end. And he has told us so that we do not cower, that we do not run around worried like the rest of the world, but that we stand up straight, we lift up our heads, and we sing praises to God no matter what comes our way. Because we know this life is not the end for us. But we have a new heaven and a new earth that God is preparing for us. Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you, but I will come back. He's coming back to take us home. And so as Jay mentioned, we are called, therefore, to give praise to God for what God done. But also throughout Revelation, I noticed this in my reading today, one through five, multiple times. Throughout the writings of Paul, multiple times, it's repeated. Stand firm in this. Don't allow what you read to waver you. Don't allow the, it is scary stuff to cause you to tremble in fear. But instead, as Jesus says, get ready for your redemption is drawing near. You have an eternal hope waiting for you. Stand firm in that hope because God who has promised it is faithful and true and he will see us through to the end. Father God, thank you. Just that when we look at your word, God, we see that it is true. God, that it is trustworthy. And God, that it is your inspired word that is living and active and speaking to us today. And so God, I pray that there is so much stuff going on around the world and even so much stuff going on in the lives of your people today that can cause us to maybe have chaos or, or worry or fear. And so God, I pray that we just be strengthened in your word, God, that we be strengthened in who you are, that we stand firm in your truth. God, I, I pray that we just sing this last song as a song of praise to you, that whatever it is that you're laying on our hearts, we respond in that way. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask this, amen.